All right, well, this morning we're continuing our series on the titles of Jesus by studying together the title of Jesus as our bridegroom. Uh, this, we get this image, this title, from a couple of different places in the New Testament. Maybe the most well-known uh, comes from the book of Revelation, uh, where the church is described as a bride washed and ready for her groom, Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself uses this same metaphor uh, at one point when he's asked by the Pharisees, uh, why is it that your disciples don't fast and the disciples of John the Baptist do? Jesus responds and says, well, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, you might fast while you're waiting for the groom to arrive, but you don't fast when he's here. You celebrate. And so the question for us this morning is, what does the Bible mean when it says that Jesus is our, that is, the church's, bridegroom or groom? Well, the first thing we need to note is that this is a metaphor. And when I say that, what I mean uh, is that it is a concept, uh, the marriage of Jesus and the church, that points beyond itself towards a greater and mysterious reality, the reality of our union with Jesus by the bond of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the reality of that union at least for now, it is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our ability to fully understand. And so God does what he often does. He reveals something to us about that reality that we don't understand by comparing it to something that we do understand. In this case, marriage. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple weeks ago, our small group, after we had had dinner, uh, one of the members of our group shared that, that he had tried unsuccessfully a couple weeks before, to purchase an NFT, a non-fungible token. Have you heard that phrase or those series of letters? Maybe. They're, they're all over the news recently, uh, and if you hear that and you think, I have no idea what that is, you're just like everybody else in our small group. We said, hold on a moment, what in the world is a non-fungible token? What does that mean? I hear about it in the news, I hear that people are paying crazy amounts of money for it, but I have no, I have no clue what it is. And so he thought for a moment, and he said, okay, an NFT is sort of like a digital painting, by which I mean it's, it's a work of creativity, it's a work of art. Uh, it, it's unique, it's not mass-produced, and people buy them both for the enjoyment of owning it and, in some cases, because they hope that it's going to be a lucrative investment. Now, I just want to say right now, nobody come up to me after the service and ask me for any more information about NFTs. You now know everything that I know, okay? But my point is that that is how metaphors work. They teach you about something you don't know, non-fungible tokens, by comparing it to something you do understand, paintings, right? We understand the metaphor correctly. It works when we realize that these two things are not the same, but they are similar in a few specific ways. Now, there's two extremes to avoid here before we dive in this morning. First, we need to make sure that we don't confuse the metaphor with reality. Uh, if you go out today and you purchase an NFT thinking that this is something you're going to hang on your wall and display in your house, you're going to be disappointed. They're like paintings, but they are not the same thing as paintings. So we need to make sure that when we say that Jesus is our bridegroom, we don't press that metaphor beyond what's intended. Second, the other extreme we need to avoid is that we need to make sure that we don't forget that while this is just a metaphor in one sense, it points towards an actual reality. Uh, when scripture says that Jesus is our bridegroom, it is making a claim 
about the very real bond that the church has with Jesus as our Savior. So what I want to do now for the rest of the morning uh, is to ask, what does this comparison to marriage teach us about this union that we as believers have with Jesus Christ? I want to touch briefly this morning on three points of comparison. All right, first... I think this comparison is meant to communicate or reveal the intimacy of our union with Jesus. Uh, By intimacy here, I I mean simply uh, knowing and being known fully and deeply by someone else. Listen, God can and does use other metaphors to describe our union with Jesus. Uh, At some points in the New Testament, it will describe us Uh, as living stones, separate stones, being built together into one building with Jesus as our cornerstone. Uh, That's an image of that union. Other places, uh, Paul in particular, will describe that union using the image of a body with all these different parts and limbs joined together in one body with Jesus as the head. That's another picture of that union. But In calling Jesus our bridegroom, God here is comparing our relationship to him with the most intimate of all human relationships. More than siblings, more even than a parent or child, marriage, for most people, not everyone, is the relationship where we are known and know the other person most deeply and fully. And through Jesus, God says, that is the kind of relationship that we will enjoy with him. Now, there's a lot we could say about that or unpack here, but I want to focus on one specific application this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around this morning. We'll start in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says this. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now indulge me for a moment. I know conceptually this isn't difficult, but it's so important. And I think it's the kind of thing that we often need to hear over and over. God loved you, knowing exactly who you are, what you've done, what you've thought and said, knowing you fully and thoroughly and completely, God loved you. Not for who you could be or who you might become, but because of who you really actually are deep down. Jesus, Paul says, saw clearly our sin, our failures, and our rebellion He saw us completely, and he loved us and laid down his life for us. Uh, My freshman year at Bethel, uh, I lived on on a floor with a whole bunch of other freshman guys, uh, and and we all started to notice a common phenomena that we called uh, the first date self, all right? So it's, it's not a very mysterious thing. In fact, it's pretty obvious once you pay attention Uh, But what we noticed is that every once in a while, you'd get to the weekend, uh, and guys who, I don't want to say they never shower, but you seldom saw them in the showers, you know, all of a sudden they're showering just to go to dinner. I said, okay, that's that's interesting. Uh, And instead of just wearing, you know, the usual sweats and the sweatshirt, 
all of a sudden they're picking out clothing on purpose. Uh, things that they think might flatter them. They're spending time in front of the mirror doing their hair. Uh, and, you, and you say, all right, so I, I know what's going on here. You must have a date. And of course they do. Uh, and the behavior only gets stranger from there. People that you can't talk to without, for more than five minutes without hearing them reference an Xbox, all of a sudden will go a whole conversation at dinner without bringing up video games at all. They'll ask questions, they'll listen intently. All of a sudden, they're, they're holding the door and they're being polite. Now, I, I happen to think this is a good thing. Uh, we, we called it the first date self. You're not being deceptive. What you're trying to do, right, as a guy, is you're trying to put the best version of yourself out there, right? You, you, want, you want this affection to be reciprocated and you think, my best shot is, is to put the best version of me out there for her to see. Well, what Paul is saying this morning, I think, is simply this. God loves you, not for the best version of yourself, but for the real version of yourself, the whole person. God knows the real you and the real me. He knows the full extent of our sin and rebellion. He also knows of, of your gifts and the good things that you do. He knows the whole you, and he loves you. When we say that Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, we mean that he knows us and loves us in all of our qualities, good and bad. That, I think, is the first thing this metaphor can teach us, that the relationship we have with Jesus is an intimate relationship, one where we are known fully and loved fully. Second, the shared status of marriage, I think, helps us understand the shared status we enjoy alongside Jesus because of our union with him. All right, now hang with me here. I know this may not be the way you're used to thinking about it, but I think this is really powerful if we can get a hold of it. Uh, when two people are married, they each gain a new shared status that is different from what either of them had before. I think maybe the easiest way to uh, think about this is through finances. Uh, when Heidi and I got married, her student loan debt and my student loan debt all of a sudden became our student loan debt, right? And to the same token, her savings and my savings all of a sudden became our savings. Now, that's not magic, okay? It's not an economic fiction. It's not make-believe. This is a new reality that's created by our legal union in marriage. What had previously been two separate accounts became one. All right, now if you're with me, with that in mind, I want you to, to have that lens in mind while I read to you from Philippians chapter three, verses four through 10. Just listen as I read. Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. For zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of the Messiah, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Look at what Paul says here through that lens of the shared status of our union, our marriage to Jesus. Or, as Paul puts it here, his little shorthand for this union is describing us as being in Christ. Paul says, listen, when it comes to my standing before God, all of the things that I, that I used to consider an asset, I now consider garbage, worthless. Instead, what does Paul do? He says that from now on, I rely on my status before God solely and exclusively on what I have received through my union with Jesus the Messiah, what I have gained in Christ. Now, we could ask Paul, why would you do that? Why would you throw away all of these perfectly good status markers that you listed out for us at the beginning of this passage? Things that you used to treasure. Well, the answer is because he's done the math. And Paul says the righteousness he gains through union with Jesus far surpasses anything he was ever going to be able to achieve on his own. And oh, by the way, he says, I was doing a lot better at achieving righteousness on my own than any of the rest of you. And even for me, what I gain in Christ is far beyond what I could ever hope to, to accomplish on my own. What Paul's saying, I think, is effectively this. This is what it means to have Jesus as our bridegroom, that when we give our allegiance to Jesus, God unites us to him by the Holy Spirit, and we gain a new status because of that union. I've always liked, uh, the, as a professor at Trinity, I think he's still at Trinity, named Kevin Van Hooser, who used to say that at that moment, uh, when we give our allegiance to Jesus, when we make him our Lord and Savior, it's as though God looks at the two of us and says, I now pronounce you man or woman in Christ. From then on, you never stand before God alone. You stand before him together with Jesus as one legal entity Here's what that means practically. When I gave my allegiance to Jesus, my debts became our debts. And you know what that means? That means my debts are gone, paid in full on the cross. When I gave my allegiance to Jesus, Jesus' perfect faithfulness, his righteousness became our righteousness. God has pronounced us as the church, as the bride of Christ. And that means that when we stand before God, we stand together with him. All right. When scripture calls Jesus our bridegroom, that metaphor, I think, teaches us first about the intimacy we enjoy with Jesus. Second, about the shared status we have through our union with him. And finally, one more thing, I think it teaches us about the permanence of that union. Turn over with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 6.
here in Matthew chapter 19, it says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. But some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replied, Haven't you read that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. There's that new status. Therefore, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees, thinking Jesus has fallen into their trap, then ask, aha, but if that's true then why did Moses make provision for a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, well, you're not wrong. Moses did make an accommodation for you, but that was because of your sinfulness and your hard-heartedness. That was not God's intent, and it was not his hope for marriage. God's intent, his hope, is that marriage would be for life. Now, I was nervous to just throw this in here as one little point. I know this is a complicated and thorny issue. But for our purposes this morning, what I want to draw your attention to is Jesus' articulation of God's intent about the duration of marriage here. Because it's God who designed this marriage covenant, and it's God who has used it as a metaphor, uh, comparing it to our union in Christ. So what does Jesus say here? He says, verse 6, that God's intent is simply this, that what he has joined together, let no one separate. So let me ask you a question now. Let's work the metaphor. Who is it that joins you to Christ Jesus when you give your allegiance to him? And who is it that compares that union to the bond of marriage by calling Jesus our bridegroom? Well, it's God who does both. God has done it. If you have given your allegiance to Jesus, God himself has joined you to Christ Jesus by his own spirit. And so let me ask you now a second question. Who then could separate you, could separate us from our groom? Well, no one and nothing. Nothing you do, nothing you say or think, nothing in all creation can now separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus is our bridegroom, and he will never send you away. Those whom God has joined to Christ, no one will separate I've now, uh, at this point in my career, performed a number of wedding ceremonies. Uh, I actually don't know exactly how many, so that's how many I've done, enough that I've lost track. And at the center of all those ceremonies is a moment when I turn to the bride and the groom and I say, groom, do you take this bride to be your wife? And he will say, he had had better say, uh, yes, I do. And then I turn to the bride and I say, bride, do you take this groom to be your husband? And likewise, she says, yes, I do. Now, I'm happy to say that so far, I've never reached that point 
and had somebody go, you know, actually, I've been thinking about this lately, and I'm not totally sure. I don't know what I would do. I would probably exit stage right. You would, you'd see me, and then I'd be gone. Uh, so far, no one has done that. It's a streak I would like to keep alive. Uh, but it occurred to me this week, as I was thinking about this title, uh, Jesus as our Bridegroom, that one way of thinking about the cross is that the cross is God's great yes, his I do to all of humanity. It's as though someone asked God, God, do you take these broken, flawed, and sinful people? Do you take them to be with you for all eternity? And God on the cross said simply, yes, I do. Even at this cost, I do. That question, friends, has been answered fully and finally and definitively. If you have ever wondered, or if you're wondering this morning, yes, but does God want me? Does he love me? The answer is right there. And it always will be. And the answer is yes, he does. But as we know, as we just recounted, that means there's still one question left that's directed back at you. And the question is, what do you say to Jesus? Do you take him to be your Savior and Lord? Will you say yes to life with him forever? If you've already said yes, then I have a different question for you this morning. If you haven't, say yes. But if you have, then what I want to ask you is, have you, like Paul, joyfully let go, joyfully let go of all of your own efforts at righteousness and simply received the righteousness that is yours through union with Jesus? Have you let go of your guilt and shame and fear and, and just rejoiced that you have been given a righteousness because of your union with Jesus that you could never have achieved on your own? Or maybe you're on the other side. And like Paul, you need to let go of the pride that comes from all of the achievements and accomplishments you've piled up by your own efforts. And maybe you need to lay that pride down and recognize that what God has given you in Christ is far greater than anything you could pile up. If that's you today, maybe today is the day that you lay those things down that you lay down your individual status before God and before others. And maybe today is the day that you simply embrace what God has given you in Jesus and that you rejoice because that gift far surpasses anything you could have ever achieved on your own. It's by grace that we're saved. It is the gift of a loving God. Receive it and rejoice. Church, Jesus is our bridegroom, and that means that he knows us fully and loves us anyway. It means our debts have been paid by him and that we now share in his righteousness. And it means that no one and nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that's in our groom. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we, we simply rejoice, we thank you, because like Paul, we look at the great gift of, of salvation, of righteousness that is ours through our union with Jesus, and, and we just stand in awe, because Father, we recognize that, that all of our best, our, the best version of ourself, all of our striving, all of our work, all, all the good things we could p- pile up are like nothing compared with what you just give us freely through Jesus. And Lord, we we give you thanks and we rejoice because we recognize it is only through that gift that we are saved. Lord, help us to lay down our pride in all of the good things, the good works that we do. Help us to lay down our shame and our guilt because of all of the sin that still exercises a hold over our lives. And help us simply, Lord, to receive the gift and to rejoice in the freedom that we have through our groom. In your name we pray, amen.